Welcome to A Look Ahead. We're delighted you've decided to join us. We study the Sabbath School lessons as prepared by the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And this particular series is a challenging one entitled, In the Crucible with Christ. And this is lesson number six in that series for August 6th of 2022, entitled, Struggling with All Energy. Struggling with All Energy. What would that be? Well, Let's begin with a word of prayer as usual. Our loving Father, we are seeking to understand some challenging passages in Scripture and to understand why it would be necessary for us to go through some of these things that you talk about in your word. We know that the entire Bible is a letter from you to us to tell us about you and about your love and all your care for us. Help us to understand those truths through these lessons is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Why is it that some people cannot get past serious problems in their lives, even many years later, while others, with God's help, can put those things behind them? So what is the role of our wills or our willpower in the battle with self and sin, and how do feelings enter into that mix? So there's something. Will, willpower, feelings... We know that God has won the great controversy. That's bottom line, finished, no chance of changing that. So how can we make sure that we stay faithful and on his side? In the plan of salvation, we are to cooperate with God. In fact, he's supposed to be the one in charge. How often do we pray and read our Bibles, and yet things do not seem to change? How often do we prevent the Holy Spirit from doing his transformative work in our lives. Jim? John chapter 16, verses 8 to 13. Jesus said, And when he, that is this Holy Spirit, comes, he will prove to the people of the world that they are wrong about sin and about what is right and about God's judgment. They are wrong about sin because they did, do not believe me They are wrong about what is right because I am going to the Father and you will not see me anymore. And they are wrong about judgment because the ruler of this world has already been judged. Verse 12, 12, I have much more to tell you, but now it would be too much for you to bear. When, however, the Spirit comes who reveals the truth about God, he will lead you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own authority, but he will speak of what he hears and will tell you of things to come. American Bible Society, Good News Translation. It's very interesting up there. The ruler of this world has already been judged. Another way of also saying that he, it could just be it. It Mm. it doesn't necessarily mean a, a a separate person. The truth is fairly... I was talking about the devil, specifically... Is the, uh, so how does the Spirit reveal the truth about God? Isn't that what the whole great controversy is all about? The Holy Spirit's greatest contribution has been to give us the Bible by inspiring prophets and apostles to write and then to preserve the Bible. So if we want to connect with the Holy Spirit, the Bible should be our first approach. As we have stated in these lessons earlier, God refuses to force our freedom. He will not control our choices. If he did, we would be automatons rather than free moral beings. 
Remember that God did not refute or change the choices or decisions of Satan and all the angels who rebelled right in the presence, his presence in heaven. I mean, couldn't he have just forced them? Well, presumably he could have. God, but God is love. Yeah. Love doesn't operate on the base of force. That's right. Think of all the ways that God could have prevented that rebellion in heaven from, progress, from progressing. Then turn to the Garden of Eden. Think of all the ways God could have prevented Eve from taking that apple. And I always smile when I, when I read that story. You know, Martin Luther, when he read this, wrote his commentary on the book of Genesis, he said, if Satan had tempted Adam instead of Eve, Adam would have said no. <laughs> Thinking, giving give you any idea what his... Men are so wonderful, aren't they? Uh, oh, yes. No, well, not a bit paternalistic, was he? Not at all. But in each case, God made it very clear what the consequences would be if they and we disobeyed. But, human, human, but humans disobeyed, and we continue to disobey. We must consciously choose God's side in each given situation. Can you think of times recently in your own life in which there was has been a battle between the Holy Spirit's will and your own selfish will? What can we do to make sure we hear God's voice when He speaks to us? While this may not be a popular thing to think about, nothing important is accomplished without effort. Carrie? Reading from... Colossians chapter 1, verses 28 through 29. So we preach Christ to everyone. With all possible wisdom, we warn and teach them in order to bring each one into God's presence as a mature individual in union with Christ. To get this done, I toil and struggle, using the mighty strength which Christ supplies and which is at work in me. That's from the Good News Bible. Let me interrupt there for a second. So how does Paul use the mighty strength which Christ supplies? How does that work? Isn't that something that we should learn about? Yeah. You'd think so, wouldn't you? I think so, yeah. Okay, reading on. Uh... Where did we stop? Hebrews, yes. Oh, Hebrews, yeah, okay. Uh, Hebrews 12, verse 4. For in your struggle against sin, you have not yet had to resist to the point of being killed. Again, from the Good News Bible. So, Paul doesn't beat around the bush. He says, some of you are going to probably have to resist all the, all the way to the point of being killed. Well, Colossians 1.29, as we've just mentioned, suggests that Paul was struggling not in his own strength, but in the strength which God gave him to overcome. How does that work? Is there a way for us to overcome using God's strength? We live in a world of labor-saving devices. We want to be able to accomplish more and more with less and less effort. Do you think the devil wants us to think we can just comfortably glide into the kingdom of heaven? I bet he does. Our human feelings often become almost overwhelming when it is time for us to make choices. Think of the times when you might have even said to yourself, what do I feel like eating for supper? Or what do I feel like doing today? Or do I feel like going to work today? 
God designed us to have feelings, but they must not be the, be the controlling influence in our lives. And one of the reasons for that is... Jeremiah 17.9, the Lord said, Who can understand the human heart? There is nothing else so deceitful. It is too sick to be healed. Good News Bible. Now, does that sound like what you would like to have in control of your life? Was that at a time of depression <laughs> by, by uh, Jeremiah? Wow. Too sick to be healed? It is useful to see and review some examples of places and times recorded in the Bible when people made very bad choices based on what their feelings were at the time. Genesis 3, 6. Wow, this is a really sad one. The woman saw how beautiful the tree was and how good its fruit would be to eat, and she thought how wonderful it would be to become wise, especially wise as God was. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. Then she gave some to her husband, and he also ate it from our Good News Bible. 2 Samuel 11, 2-4 One day, late in the afternoon, David got up from his nap and went to the palace roof. As he walked about up there, he saw a woman having a bath. She was very beautiful. So she sent a messenger to find out who she was and learned that she was Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. By the way, she was the granddaughter of one of David's best advisors. David sent messengers to fetch her. They brought her to him, and he made love to her. She had just finished her monthly ritual of purification. Then she went back home. And I, uh, every time, I, there's other stories like this in the Bible that, you know, I wonder. This woman was married. She had been married for some time to Uriah the Hittite. She had never been pregnant. If she had had children at home, she would not be have been bathing in the backyard with no, you know, in the nude, basically. So, we're pretty sure that she has one encounter with David and bang, she's pregnant. So apparently, Think that was an accident? No. <laughs> apparently Uriah was infertile. Lots of, lots of men are. Well, that's a possibility. Yeah. Galatians or, or was God giving her birth control pills until that time? Well, that's one of the questions because, I mean, Uri- Uriah was one of David's fi- famous fighting men. He wasn't... He's not sterile. No, but it, it hints he, he's not short of testosterone. Galatians two eleven through 12. But when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him, and this is Paul speaking, I opposed him in public because he was clearly wrong. Before some men who had been sent by James arrived there, Peter had been eating with the Gentile brothers and sisters. But after these men arrived, he drew back and would not eat with the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who were in favor of circumcising them. Good news Bible. Boy, here we have a conflict with, between Paul and Peter. I, I thought these guys were saints. <laughs> Better put that word in quotes. In so. quotes. And First Peter one thirteen. P- Peter, without specifically saying so, was encouraging us to keep in mind the entire great controversy. I guess we should look at that really quick. First Peter one thirteen. So then... Have your minds ready for action. Keep alert and set your hope completely on the blessing which will be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. 
Um, how can we know for sure we're not basing our choices on feeling, emotion, or desire? Are all our choices based on the Word of God and the Holy Spirit's guidance? The Bible has some radical things to say about that. Jim? Matthew 5, verses 29 and 30. Jesus said, So if your right eye causes you to sin, take it out and throw it away. It is much better for you to lose a part of your body than to have your whole body thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is much better for you to lose one of your limbs than for your whole body to go to hell. There should be an awful lot of us with amputations and (laughs) without eyes, shouldn't there? Years ago, I had a client whose son, well, he became a client too, but anyway... He, he had just one hand. And he'd read that verse. It was involved with the Campus Crusade for Christ. Uh-huh. And he took a lawn edger and powered it up and took his hand off. It's not a made-up story. It's a, he was not the most mentally stable. Yeah, well, fellow, but, you oh. know that um, if you're caught stealing... In Saudi Arabia, they will cut your hand off. Well, years ago, right after the first Gulf War, I had a client come in and tell me how, um, you know, they have a great system over there in uh, Saudi Arabia. If you do that, cut your hand off. Yep. Uh, if you if you have a, a drunk driving, they have, give you the best attorney, and then they kill you. It's a, it's a great system, he thought. <laughs> well... Well, what does that do for the for the uh, attitudes and uh, motives? You don't have to think a lot. There's not a lot of cogitation that goes on when you uh, embrace that point of view. Well, virtually every true Christian would agree with this general principle, right? We don't want to go to hell. We do, uh, uh, but taking out an eye or cutting off a leg is not that pretty radical. Many of us have, one time or another in our lives, been controlled by wrong habits. We won't ask anybody to do any soul confession right now. We have heard many stories about smokers and alcoholics who miraculously lost their taste for the habit. And that's great. But most of the time, those kinds of miraculous changes do not happen. Changes of significant magnitude require a struggle between us, with the help of the Holy Spirit, and the devil. Does God sometimes allow such challenges? Do these struggles happen so that we recognize once again our need for Him? The story of Jacob is an amazing story, including deceiving his father, causing the wrath of his brother, and escaping to Haran to live for 20 years with his relatives, during which time he ended up with two wives and two concubines, and then finally being encouraged by God to go back home. During that trip back home, Jacob who had that incredible experience in which he fought with an unknown assailant, did he think it was Esau? Or one of Esau's soldiers? Well, here's what the story says, or part of it anyway. Carrie? Oh. <laughs> dreaming again. Genesis, I'm reading from Genesis chapter 32, verses 22 to 32. That same night, Jacob got up, took his two wives, his two concubines, and his eleven children, and crossed the river Jabbok. After he had sent them across, he also sent across all that he owned, but he stayed behind alone. And a man came and wrestled with him until just before daybreak. 
When the man saw that he was not winning the struggle, he struck Jacob on the hip and it was thrown out of joint. Then the man said, Let me go, daylight is coming. I won't unless you bless me, Jacob asked. Answered rather, What is your name? the man asked. Jacob, he answered. The man said, Your name will no longer be Jacob. You have struggled with God and with men, and you have won, so your name will be Israel. Jacob said, Now tell me your name. But he answered, Why do you want to know my name? Then he blessed Jacob. Jacob said, I have seen God face to face, and I am still alive. So he named the place Peniel. The sun rose as Jacob was leaving Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Even today, the descendants of Israel do not eat the muscle which is on the hip joint, because it was on this muscle that Jacob was struck. That's from the Good News Bible. Wow. The Bible account is recorded for our benefit. Let me ask a question here. Hold on a minute here. Imagine Jacob fighting with God. And we know who this was, don't we? The biblical account is recorded for our benefit. We know that Jacob was actually struggling with Jesus Christ himself. Why would Jesus come down to this earth and struggle with Jacob under those circumstances? Jacob, and this is another case where I mean, if if God comes down to this earth and he's doing something here in person, how many of the onlooking universe do you think are watching? Probably most, if not all. <laughs> Probably all of them. Yeah, I mean, this is this is not something that happens every day, right? Well, Jacob needed to realize his total dependence upon God in that difficult, potentially life-threatening situation. No doubt Jacob often thought about his flight away from home and away from Esau and that vision he received at Bethel. Then he was coming back, trying to reestablish himself in the promised land. Because what had Abraham been told? This land is your land, right? When he received word that his brother was coming with 400 trained soldiers, he thought that his life was hanging by a very thin thread or string. So, Gordon? From the writings of Ellen White and Patriarchs and Prophets, Satan had accused Jacob before the angels of God. Does that remind you of anybody? Sounds like Job. Sounds like Job, doesn't it? Claiming the right to destroy him because of his sin. He had moved upon Esau to march against him, and during the Patriarch's long night of wrestling, Satan endeavored to force him, to force upon him a sense of guilt in order to discourage him. So Satan was there in the struggle mm-hmm. as well as God and yep. Jacob slash Israel. Try to, try to imagine. I, I, I've wondered about this. So the next morning he finally wakes up. His, his, his hip is in trouble. He's trouble walking. He has to cross the river by himself. And he finally joins his two group, his two groups that they've, he separated them so that if, if, they, if his enemies attack one of them, the others might have a chance to escape. And he said, guess what? God changed my name last night. What? I mean, have you, have you thought thought about that? What would you wake wake up one morning and tell your wife that God changed your name in the middle of the night? What would they say? A little bit over the edge. (laughs) Well, go ahead. 
again, Satan endeavored to force upon him a sense of guilt in order to discourage him and break his hold upon God. When in his distress Jacob laid hold of the angel and made supplication with tears, the heavenly messenger, in order to try his faith, also reminded him of his sin and endeavored to escape from him. But Jacob would not be turned away. He had he had learned that God is merciful, and he cast upon himself he cast himself upon his mercy. Now let me interrupt here just a second. He endeavored to escape from Jesus? But Jacob would not be turned away? This is... Well, go ahead. Was it Jesus that... Who was he fighting at that point? Was it God or the devil? Or Well, no. We're told it was Jesus that, that he was fighting with here. Go ahead. He had learned that God is merciful and he cast himself upon his mercy. He pointed back to his repentance for his sin and pleaded for deliverance. As he reviewed his life, he was driven almost to despair, but he held fast the angel. And notice the angel is capitalized there. As in God. Mm -hmm. And with earnest, agonizing Christ, urged his petition until he prevailed. Such will be the experience of God's people in their final struggle with the powers of evil. God will test their faith, their perseverance, their confidence in his power to deliver them. Satan will endeavor to terrify them with the thought that their cases are hopeless, that their sins have been too great to receive pardon. They will have a deep sense of their shortcomings. It doesn't have to be too... uh, Don't have to search too hard to get that. Most of us... And as they review their lives, their hopes will sink. But remembering the greatness of God's mercy and their own sincere repentance... They will plead his promises made through Christ to helpless, repenting sinners. Their faith will not fail because their prayers are not immediately answered. They will lay hold on the strength of God as Jesus laid hold on the angel. As Jacob, as, as Jacob laid hold on the angel, capitalized angel. Hmm. And the language of their souls will be, I will not let thee go except thou bless me. By the way, the word angel, both in Hebrew and Greek, means messenger. It doesn't mean a winged creature of some kind. So, if God, in this case, is a messenger, he's called an angel. Continuing with Ellen White and Patriarchs and Prophets, Had not Jacob previously repented of his sin in obtaining the birthright by fraud, God could not have heard his prayer and mercifully preserved his life. Why not? I thought God could do anything. Well, what what is this? Satan says, if he hasn't repented from this, Jacob's still on my side. You know, he he's following. He's in my camp. He's not in your camp, God. You can't do this for him. Mm -hmm. So, in the time of trouble, if the people of God had unconfessed sins to appear before them, while tortured with fear and anguish, they would be overwhelmed. Despair would cut off their faith. And they could not have the confidence to plead with God for deliverance. But while they have a deep sense of their unworthiness, they will have no concealed wrongs to reveal. Their sins will have been blotted out by the atoning blood of Christ, and they cannot bring them to remembrance. Patriarchs and Prophets 201, 
paragraph 3 through 202. So what practical choices can we make in our lives to draw us nearer to God and His plan for our lives? Do we need to make changes in our associations, maybe our lifestyle, our reading materials, our health habits, our TV watching, our spiritual life? We need to spend more time in Bible study, prayer, and witnessing. Everyone is supposed to be doing those things in preparation for what is coming. This will, that forms so important a factor in the character of man, was at the fall given into the control of Satan, and he has ever since been working in man to will and to do of his own pleasure, but to the utter ruin and misery of man. From Ellen White, Testimonies for the Church, Volume Page, Volume 5, page 515. Reading on, another passage from Ellen White. In order to receive God's help, man must realize his weakness and deficiency. He must apply his own mind to the great change to be wrought in himself. He must be aroused to earnest and persevering prayer and effort. Wrong habits and customs must be shaken off. And it is, how do you do that? How bad do you have to shake? Anyway. Um, <clears throat> and it is only by determined effort, uh, endeavor, I'm sorry, to correct these errors and to conform to right principles that the victory can be gained. Many never attain to the pos- position that they might occupy because they wait for God to do for them that which He has given them power to do for themselves. Now last week in our lesson we talked about doing for yourself. Abraham tried to do it for himself, didn't he? He did. Was he wrong in doing that? This suggests that if God has given them the power to do it, given us the power to do something, he won't do it for us. The challenge here is that God has specifically already told him how it was going to be solved, and so Abraham decided to do it in a different way. So a question here. Where is the boundary between doing for ourselves that which we think we can versus we can what we think we can versus relying on God? How can we know when to wait for God and when to proceed with our own decisions? For example, what about Abraham having an heir with Hagar after many years trying with Sarah? I mean, you know, how many years? 25 years? Well, many years. years. Even longer. All who are fitted for usefulness must be trained by the severest mental and moral discipline, and God will assist them by uniting divine power with human effort. So that's how we get God's help, huh? Patriarchs and Prophets 248. So how successful can we be trying to accomplish things by our own selves, Jim? Ellen White says we can do nothing of ourselves. In all our helpless worth unworthiness, we must treat in the merits of trust. the, we must trust in the merits of the crucified and risen Savior. None will ever perish while they do this. The long black catalog of our delinquencies is before the eye of the infinite. The register is complete. None of our offenses are forgiven. But he well, who hold on, wait, wait. are forgotten. Excuse forgotten. Me. Okay. <laughs> 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 let's, let's let's get our, 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 our theology straight here. Syllables. But here's a good question. I remember being taught when I was young that when you when you kneel down beside your bed at night and you pray to God to forgive your sins, they get wiped out, right? What does this say? They're not forgotten. 
They're not forgotten. There's nothing wrong with God's memory. They okay? Aren't, they aren't held against us. Okay. We'll bring well, them up again. Yeah. Yep. I just, as Graham Maxwell used to say, I distinctly, re- God says, I distinctly remember that I would forget that. Yeah. <laughs> distinctly remember forgetting that. Yeah. Go ahead. But he who listens... Excuse me, he who listened to the cries of his servants of old will hear the prayer of faith and pardon our transgressions. He has promised and he will fulfill his word. The greatest victories of the, to the church of Christ or to the individual Christians are not those that are gained by talent or education, by wealth or the favor of men. They are those victories that are gained in the audience chamber with God when earnest agonizing faith lays hold upon the mighty arm of power. Ellen White, Patriarchs and Prophets, page 202, paragraph 4 and 203, 1. Ellen White's warfare against self is the greatest battle that was ever fought. The yielding of self, surrender all to the will of God, requires a struggle when the soul must submit to God before it can be renewed in holiness. God does not force the will of his creatures. He cannot accept an homage that is not willingly, intelligently given. A mere force of submission would prevent all real development of mind or character. It would make man a mere automaton. Whatever shall draw away the heart from God must be given up. Mammon is the idol of many, the love of money, the desire of wealth, is the golden chain that binds them to Satan. Reputation and worldly honor are worshipped by another class. The life of self-ease and freedom from responsibility is the idol of others. But those slavish bands must be broken. We cannot be half the Lord's and half the world's. We are not God's children unless we are such entirely. There are those who profess to serve God while they rely upon their own efforts to obey his law, to form a right character and secure salvation. Their hearts are not moved by any deep sense of the love of Christ, but they seek to perform the duties of the Christian life as that which God requires of them in order to gain heaven. Such religion is worth nothing. When Christ dwells in the heart, the soul will be filled with his love, with the joy of communion with him, that it will cleave to him, and in the contemplation of him, self will be forgotten. Love to Christ will be the spring of action. Those who feel the constraining love of God do not ask how little may be given to meet the requirements of God. They do not ask for the lowest standard but aim at perfect conformity to the will of their Redeemer. With earnest desire, they yield all and the manifest and interest proportionate to the value of the subject which they seek. A profession of Christ without this deep love is mere talk, dry formality and heavy drudgery. Ellen White, Steps to Christ, page 43, paragraph 3 to 42, excuse me, 44, paragraph 2. Wow. So a legal religion is worthless. What actually happened to mankind when Adam and Eve ate the fruit in the Garden of Eden and we fell, quote-unquote? 
Jesus came to this earth and lived as a human being, showing that it was possible for human beings on this earth to live in perfect cooperation with our Father in Heaven. But it was not easy. Okay? I'm speaking from Matthew 26, verses 36 through 42. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. He took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee. Grief and anguish came over him, and he said to them, The sorrow in my heart is so great that it almost crushes me. Stay here and keep watch with me. He went a little farther on, threw himself face downwards on the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, take this cup of suffering from me, yet not what I want, but what you want. Then he returned to the three disciples and found them asleep. And he said to Peter, How is it that you three were not able to keep watch with me even for one hour? Keep watch and pray that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Wow. Once more Jesus went away and prayed, My father, if this cup of suffering cannot be taken away unless I drink it, your will be done. He returned once more and found the disciples asleep. They could not keep their eyes open. That's from the Good News Bible. Then, Did, go ahead. I was going to say, did the devil have something to do with their being unable to stay awake? Did the devil use anesthetic agents? <laughs> Modernizers. Oh, dear. I'm, I'm sure he did whatever he could. Yeah. What can we do not only to help ourselves, but also help others around us who may be struggling with their spiritual situation? Maybe they've not attended church for a long time or Sabbath school. Can we reach out to help them? In order to successfully maintain our relationship with God, we need to understand the basic principles in the Great Controversy. The truth about God, about evil, and our situation in that larger context. Are we, on a day-by-day basis, intentionally choosing God's side? That's the question. Do we understand clearly the fact that God refuses to force our will? And do we understand why that is important? Without freedom, love is impossible. In order for us to maintain a close, working, long-term relationship with God, it requires perseverance and commitment, even radical commitment. This lesson is focused on, one, the role of truth in overcoming crucibles, the role of our free will in overcoming crucibles, the role of commitment and perseverance in overcoming crucibles. That's from our adult teacher, Sabbath School Bible Study Guide, page 80. The argument between free will, God's grace, and salvation has been a centerpiece of the Christian dialogue since the 5th century. Hmm, that's a long time ago. The extremes in this argument were probably represented by Pelagius, who lived from 355 to 420 A.D., who moved from what is now England to Rome, versus Augustine, who lived from 354, he was one year older than Pelagius, to 430, he lived ten years longer, who was the bishop of Hippo in North Africa. So, Augustine, let's let's work our way 
carefully through this. Augustine believed that God created human beings perfect, good, loving, and free. That, that sounds correct, right? He believed that when we sinned, we lost our freedom. Is that true? We're still free to, but we become slaves. Remember, Jesus says, I'm no longer okay. calling you slaves. You're slaves of the... We, we still, we, we freely choose to do right. what's wrong. Right. And we cannot, according to Augustine, we cannot, under any circumstances, live a truly Christian life because we are born with that sinful nature which we have inherited from Adam. So we are in trouble because Adam sinned, right? That's what Augustine said. It is impossible for us to consistently choose good, according to Augustine. Augustine went on to say that we essentially cannot accomplish anything by ourselves. We can only be freed from all this evil by undertaking certain sacraments administered by the church. What's a sacrament? Rituals. A kind of ritual. Baptism is a sacrament. The Lord's Supper is a sacrament. Okay. Thus God can remove. So Augustine basically is saying, if you're not a part of the church, you don't have a chance of being saved. Right? Thus God... That made it even very powerful to for the for the church to disallow sacraments for a city or a, mm-hmm. a person, a king. Thus God can remove our inherent guilt and regenerate us as new spiritual beings with the help of the Holy Spirit and the sacraments of the church. Augustine believed, believed in divine predestination, thus suggesting that God already has made the choice for some to be saved and others to be lost. So, what's going on there? Divine predestination. Do we have any freedom left? Not according to Augustine. Pelagius correctly suggested that Augustine's position would lead people to be lax in their efforts to obey God. Why? If one believes that she or he is already either saved or lost, why should you struggle? Why should you make all kinds of efforts? You're saved already. God has already chosen. Now, how does that fit with our idea that God foreknows the future? Does that mean we're predestined? No. We still have free choice. God just knows what we're going to choose. Ooh. Does that mean our choices are free if God already knows what they are? Sure. We're we're talking about the infinite one. Mm -hmm. And we're finite beings, but we think we can impose our thinking on the infinite. And... uh, we don't think, can't think of. Okay, he said, by contrast, Pelagius believed that we remain free, that our choices are still free. But unfortunately, each of us chooses to follow the example of Adam and Eve, and we sin. That fits with Romans 5. It says, Adam and Adam sinned, and we follow his example, we sin too. So we are guilty not because of guilt that we inherited from Adam, as Augustine argued, but rather because of wrong personal choices. Each one, so far. each one of us is personally responsible. Thus, because we are truly free, God holds us accountable for what we do. God has given us the example of Jesus to show that it is possible for humans to live a perfect life. 
He recognizes that we will not be able to do that, but he helps us when we fail. For more information about the argument between Augustine and Pelagius, you can see this Alistair E. McGrath, Christian Theology and Introduction, to, and Introduction from 5th edition, Oxford, UK, Wiley Blackwell, pages 18 to 20. Well, we do not need to go either the, go to either the extreme of Augustine or Pelagius. The truth can be found in the Bible itself. The Bible tells us what? God is love. And of course, many favorite verses. For God loved the world so much that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him may not die but have eternal life. And then some other very important verses. 1 John 4, 8. Whoever does not love does not know God, for God is love. And then verse 16, God is love, and those who live in love live in union with God, and God lives in union with them. That's atonement rather than atonement. Yeah. So, God, the Bible tells us that God created Adam and Eve innocent. Genesis 1.30, we know about those. Genesis 2.25 and Ecclesiastes 7.29. And with freedom of choice, Genesis two fifteen to seventeen, the example of Eve. However, our parents chose to sin, and we know that story. So this is taken from our adult teacher Sabbath school Bible study guide, and I actually went to the process of looking up every one of these verses and recording them in a file, thinking, well, maybe. But then I thought, you know, first of all, we'll never have time to read all this, and. Uh, We'll summarize it here using the words from the Bible study guide. And here are some of the verses which we just read. Um, And we ourselves know and believe the love which God has for us. God is love, and those who live in love with, live, live in love, live in union with God, and God lives in union with them. Genesis 131, God looked at everyone he had made, including especially humans, and he was very pleased. Evening passed and morning came. That was the sixth day. So if God makes something and he's very pleased with it, is it good or is it bad? Very good. Good. Must have been very good. We do not understand all the changes that took place when sin entered our world, but it is very clear that they were profound. As a result, we experience suffering, death, and condemnation. I guess I shouldn't read all of this. I think Gordon, it's your turn. From the Teacher's Bible Study Guide, page 82. For this reason, all humans are born in sin, and none is born righteous. Romans 3, 9 through 18, and verse 23. Psalms 14, 1 through 3, and Psalms 51, 5. Thus, the Bible rejects Pelagianism and presents sin as more than an individual human act. Rather, sin is described as both an external and internal force that enslaves and destroys all humanity in all its aspects. Facing this grim outlook, Paul exclaimed exclaimed desperately, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Romans 7.24 And I think it's a sin to mention, to read that verse, Wretched man, and my Good News Bible has, what an unhappy man I am, who will rescue me from this body that is taking me to death. And what does it say next? Thanks be to God who does this through our Lord Jesus Christ. This then is my condition. On my own I could serve God's law only with my mind while my human nature serves the law of sin. And then he goes on in chapter 8, there is no condemnation now for those who live in union with Christ Jesus. 
I think only a small portion was in the Bible study guide. Yeah. Um, Continuing with the Bible study guide. By itself, humanity cannot solve the problem of sin and evil. The only hope for for sinful humanity is in the sacrificial and transformative ministry of Jesus Christ. It's true through the ministry of Jesus Christ. Is it because of a sacrifice? Romans 3, 24 and 25, Romans 5, 6 through 19, and Romans 7, 25. And in the regenerative and mediating ministry of the Holy Spirit who gives us a new heart. Adult Teacher's Bible Study Guide. So this lesson has attempted here in the last part of the lesson of giving us a detailed Bible study guide for if you have questions about some of these things, it, we would encourage you to look up these passages and, and study them for yourself. We don't have time to read them all right now. Our Bible study guides are available on our website. That's uh, www.theox. That's t h e o x. dot o r g, and you can download this handout and read the verses for yourself if you choose to do that. Think how quickly things deteriorated to the point when Cain, where Cain killed Abel. I mean, here's Adam and Eve. The Garden of Eden is still there. They're outside the Garden of Eden because they have sinned, but they can come, they come to the gate of the garden. They worship there. They know what's inside there. And first son, their very first son is a murderer. Wow. So Romans 5. Think how quickly things have just changed, but Look at Romans 5 to give us an idea of what happened and might be what might be the answer. Sin came into the world to one man, and that, of course, was Adam and Eve. And his sin brought death with it. As a result, death is spread to the whole human race because everyone has sinned. So, why is death spread to every human being? Is it because Adam sinned? No, it's because everyone sinned, Right? There was sin in the world before the law was given, but where there is no law, no account is kept of sins. But from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, death ruled over the whole human race, even over those who did not sin in the same way that Adam did when he disobeyed God's command. So what is he trying to say there? What was, what was Adam's sin? Who's a direct disobedient? Do not eat of that tree. And what did they do? They ate of the tree. It was lack of trust in God. Yeah. They didn't want to listen. Well, they somehow got the idea from from Eve's feelings that, well, look at what he's promising us. We can be as wise as God. We can know what we can, you know, all that kind of stuff. She listened to the deceiver. Yeah. As Norm Peckham used to say, Adam and Eve transferred their faith from God to the creature in the tree. Adam was a figure of the one who was to come. But the two, we're going back to Romans 5 now, but the two are not the same because God's free gift is not like Adam's sin. It is true that many people died because of the sin of that one man, but God's grace is much greater and so is his free gift to the, so, to his free gift to so many people through the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ. And there is a difference between God's gift and the sin of one man. After the one sin came the judgment of Guilty. But after so many sins comes an undeserved gift of not guilty. It is true that through the sin of one man, death began to rule because of that one man. 
But how much greater is the result of what was done by the one man, Jesus Christ. All who receive God's abundant grace and are freely put right with God, uh, I'm sorry, put right with Him, will rule in life through Christ. So then, as the one sin condemned all people in the same way the one righteous act acts sets all people free and gives them life. Is that true? One righteous act sets all people free, gives them life? What's he saying? Well, if they learn the lesson, if they don't yeah. listen to the lesson. So the, the, the salvation is offered freely, sure. right? Sure, correct. The salvation is offered. Not everybody's accepting it, but salvation is offered. And the healing. Yeah. If we use the word healing and health instead of salvation and save, it's more clear. And just as the mass of people were made sinners as a result of the disobedience of one man, in the same way the mass of people will all be put right, that is if they, and he goes on to say, explain that in chapter 8, put right with God as a result of the obedience of the one man. So there is a way that each one of us can come back to God, right? Well, Romans 1 through 3 makes it very clear that by our own choice, by their own choices, humans have become very sinful. And Romans 1, after introducing himself to the, remember Romans, the, the chapter, the book of Romans was written from Corinth to Rome because there was already a church in Rome and Paul was getting ready to go there. He had, of course he didn't know what was coming up, the, the events that would happened to him before he got to Rome, but he he's introduces himself first and he talks about the gospel and then he says, But look at this is what this is the situation of the of the people around among whom we live. And it gives the longest list of one of the longest lists of sins in the whole Bible. He nails it down. And then he something he says something that's quite surprising. In chapter two he says I just told you how bad all those sinners were, but you people, you Jews, who claim to be God's true people, are worse. Worse? How could that be possible? But that's what he says. And then finally he goes on in chapter 3 and he starts talking about the remedy. But God is a, has a plan as spelled out in Romans 5. Jim? Historically, most Christians rejected Pelagius and embraced Augustine's understanding that all humans are born with a sinful nature, and that sin is an invincible force for humans. Do you you buy that? Do you agree with that? It's not an invincible force. God isn't... Well, the the question is, are we born with a sinful nature, or or are we born... But we are also born with freedom. Freedom to choose. Yes. Choices. Okay. Roman Catholics integrated into their theology Augustine's idea that all humans inherit Adam's guilt and the need for sacraments, but rejected his view of predestination. Okay, let's stop and analyze that just once again. So, according to Augustine's view and the Catholic Church, the Catholic Church's view, how do you get saved? Gotta have be baptized. You, well, not just baptized. Well, I mean, yeah, basically that's one. You have to come back to the church, and the church is the one that has the key to your salvation. They talk about Peter has the keys. Remember, big deal. Peter has the keys, and you can't be saved unless you 
follow their plans. Because of that following, that's where you have the the baptism. Yeah. And you got to do it quick because the the, the child may die. And, and uh, anyway, uh, let's see. In contradistinction, Protestantism rightly rejected Augustine's idea that we inherit Adam's guilt and that God's grace comes through the sacraments. But large parts of parts of Protestantism erroneously accepted his concept of predestination. In the wake of the Enlightenment, modern and postmodern societies tend to reject the Augustinian idea and Augustinian ideas and think more in the line with Pelagius. We so what we're saying there is humans living in an our day don't want to think that we're depending on God for anything. We are independent. Maybe we even were descendants of monkeys and whatever and slime, etc. We don't need God, so forth. We we are independent. Okay. To reach people in those in these societies, we not only need to emphasize the biblical teachings on the free will and our profound responsibility for our individual and communal history, but we share the biblical teaching about the seriousness of the power of sin and our only hope of salvation in Jesus Christ. This illustration helps us understand that knowing the truth is essential for our understanding of suffering and trials in our lives. But it also helps us understand our own nature and the power of free will. Such understanding helps us always seek and accept God's help, guidance, and power to overcome our crucibles. Bible Study Guide, page 83. Okay, many Christians have been tempted to accept what has come to be called cheap grace. What's cheap grace? Thinking that once they have committed themselves to go to God through baptism, that they cannot be lost. In contrast, God calls for radical commitment. I will never forget the experience I had with, one time I went with a chaplain, not an Adventist chaplain, uh, and some people, and they said, watch, we'll, we'll, we can save people. Let me show you how we do this. Went into a person's, a, a young woman's room. Talked to her a little bit. Said, do you believe this and this and this? Okay, you're saved. Do you believe you're saved? Yeah, I believe I'm saved. Okay, fine. Walked out. Don't have to come back again. Well, uh, God calls for radical commitment. Some Christians think Christianity is synonymous with the absence of suffering and troubles. Other Christians do allow for some amount of inconvenience, like that inconvenience, but how many Christians are radically committed to God, to his call to follow Christ, to his kingdom, and to his mission in the great conflict between God and Satan, good and evil? In the context of increasing persecution of contemporary Christians in various parts of the world, numerous Christians feel the need for a better, indeed radical, preparedness to go through crucibles. And I don't know how many of you are, are following this in any way, but I mean, think about what's going on with the world. The communists are persecuting Christians. Yeah. Muslims are persecuting Christians. Hindus are pre- well. Hindus not so much, but they're, it's it's if you're Hindu, it's a, it's against the law in many parts of India to change religions. And now in Africa, the pagans are persecuting Christians. We are sitting here very comfortably, but boy, other parts of the world, they are not. 
think there's some places that Christians are persecuting Christians. It yeah. certainly has been true through the ages. So examine your level of commitment to God and his kingdom. Design a scale of personal commitment based on your scale. What is radical commitment to you? To what extent are you ready in your Christian commitment to serve God in whatever way he may ask of you? That's a question asked by our uh, Adult Teacher Sabbath School Bible Study Guide. So, are we prepared for radical commitment to God's side in the great controversy? Now, let's talk about that for a second. What's coming? A time of trouble. Does that require a radical commitment? I have I have struggled with this in my mind. I spent 17 years working in Africa. And I mean I'm talking we're talking about people who are faithful, they they come to church regularly. I mean they don't even have the Bible in their own language. God can't possibly require of them the kind of you know commitment and understanding and so forth that we have. So I mean, of course, the Bible says that God takes into into account where we were born, right? But what it, opportunities we've had to learn? Yeah. So, but what's going to happen to those people in the time of trouble? Are, are they are they not going to have a time of trouble like we have? I I struggle with that question. Um, anyway. Time of trouble is coming, and Jesus and the Bible tell us, and Ellen White tells us, it's not going to be comfortable. Uh, people are going to die, they're going to be in prison, they're going to be in court, be taken before courts, etc. And we need to prepare ourselves. Let's pray. Our kind and loving Father, these lessons are a challenge. They make us want to think, want to decide, to, to, to work on these things, how can we come to be more like you? Surely there is a need for us to be preparing ourselves for what's coming. We know that your your coming has been delayed. The Bible spells it out very clearly. Ellen White spells it out very clearly. Your coming has been delayed because we have not been ready. But help us now to get ourselves ready to take all these thoughts seriously so that you can return again soon is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.